Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now, or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again, wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Sarah Avon Stover, host of Truth, Love, and Beauty. I'm an author, internal family systems practitioner, and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality, who's built a long career since the early 2000s to be exact, in supporting women to cultivate greater psycho-spiritual wholeness and, in turn, to come home to themselves. My dedication to women and to the upliftment of the feminine at large has been a lifelong one. From growing up as the second oldest of four sisters in a Connecticut suburb of New York City, to studying at an Ivy League all-women's college, all the way up to today. And the very things I support women with mirror the struggles that I've had. Things like doubting, pushing, perfecting, hating, and yes, at times, even hurting myself. Yet I found, and I have a sense that because you're here, you have too, that these very wounds and pain points can become openings for profound healing, growth, and spiritual insight. I created this podcast in service of honoring just this, this sacred healing journey that we women are on. It was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. 
Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations with leading thinkers and luminaries about all facets of the feminine spiritual journey. Plus, this podcast highlights three of the core values we must embrace on the feminine path, truth, love, and beauty. Values which we all need more of during this tumultuous time in history. I'm so happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Happy Labor Day weekend for those of you in the U.S. Today, I have a guest that I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a little while, Kyra Jewelingo. And a colleague recommended her book to me earlier this year when I was working on the proposal for my new book. And Kyra Jewel's book is called We Were Made for These Times, Skillfully Moving Through Change, Loss, and Disruption. And I had also just heard about her through other Buddhist circles, and I'm really looking forward to sharing her and her work with all of you today. So more about Kyra Jewel Lingo. She is a Dharma teacher who has a lifelong interest in blending spirituality, meditation, and social justice. Having grown up in an ecumenical Christian community where families practiced a new kind of monasticism and worked with the poor, at the age of 25, she entered a Buddhist monastery in the Plum Village tradition and spent 15 years living as a nun under the guidance of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. She received lamp transmission from Thich Nhat Hanh and became a Zen teacher in 2007. She's also a teacher in the Vipassana Insight Lineage through Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Today, she sees her work as a continuation of the engaged Buddhism developed by Thich Nhat Hanh, as well as the work of her parents inspired by their stories and her dad's work with Martin Luther King Jr. on desegregating the South. In addition to writing We Were Made for These Times, 10 Lessons in Moving Through Change, Loss, and Disruption, she is also the editor of Thich Nhat Hanh's Planting Seeds, Practicing Mindfulness with Children. Now based in New York, she teaches and leads retreats internationally, provides spiritual mentoring, and interweaves art, play, nature, racial and earth justice, and embodied mindfulness practice in her teaching. She especially feels called to share the Dharma with Black, Indigenous, and people of color, as well as activists, educators, youth, artists, and families. You can learn more about her at kyrajewel.com. And in our conversation today, we speak about what led her to step away from monastic life in Plum Village, as well as what that tumultuous transition was like for her. We speak about both of our unfulfilled endeavors to become mothers and how we are both at peace with accepting that that is just not our paths. Also ways that she integrates the Dharma and social justice, things she misses most about monastic life, as well as how we can all work with strong emotions and uncertainty when we are in the unknown of transition. And we also speak about what's next on the horizon for her. Kyra has a gentle, strong, clear presence. And I hope that 
with her transmission and what we speak about together today is of benefit to you. All right, Kyra Jewell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sarah. Good to be here. And we always start our conversations with a personal check-in. So I'd love for you to share with us how you're doing at the levels of body, heart, and mind today, Hmm. as well as where you're joining us from. Yeah. I'm joining from uh, the lands of the Muncie Lenape and Merrick peoples of Long Island. Um, aware that this land didn't come to me by their choice. Um, and hmm, I feel like I'm I'm still transitioning to being back home. I was away in Europe for 12 days and I got home almost a week ago, but I still feel like I'm uh, landing and um, yeah, I, I'm, well, and I'm noticing this, there, there was a kind of difficulty with our dog this morning where she's chewed things we treasure two days in a row now so the whole (laughs) there was a bit of a drama this morning and that's I'm noticing as I pause that that's still kind of this sense of like I can't trust this being that I so love and it's you know in my house at any moment she can (laughs) destroy something we, we we got the vacuum cleaner out to pick up one of her messes and we left something out of the vacuum cleaner and she destroyed that. So we can't use the vacuum cleaner now. Anyway, it was one of those things. Um, but overall, yeah, just a sense of, of still transitioning. Mm. Where, where were you in Europe? Um, I was in Plum Village, the monastery in Southern France and um, spent a little time in Germany um, and then Denmark. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I'm headed over there in about, a, about 10 days. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Going to Amsterdam and Southern France and Paris. Hmm. Yeah. So we're here today to primarily talk about your new book, which encapsulates a lot of, a lot of different threads and it came out last November. And for those who are watching the video and hold it up, it's, uh, we were made for these times, 10 lessons for moving through change, loss and disruption. And towards the end of the book, you you share that this title was inspired by a passage that you came across by Dr. Clarissa Pincola Estes. And um, I have that passage on page 109. I don't know if you have your book nearby. If you don't, that's fine. But, um, and then I, I, I would love to read it if that's all right with you, this sure. passage. Sure. So this was from Letter to a Young Activist During Troubled Times. My friends, do not lose heart. We were made for these times. 
I have heard from so many recently who are deeply and properly bewildered. Ours is a time of almost daily astonishment and often righteous rage over the latest degradations of what matters most. You are right in your assessments. Yet I urge you, ask you, gentle you, to please not spend your spirit dry by bewailing these difficult times. Especially do not lose hope. Most particularly because the fact is that we were made for these times. Yes, for years we have been learning, practicing, been in training for and just waiting to meet on this exact plane of engagement. This passage speaks so well to these times and obviously it struck you so much to name your book after it. Can, can, you, speak, can you speak more about this passage and, and how it inspired this work of yours? Sure. Um, yeah, it was so striking when I read it that um, we already have what we need for this moment and that we're not supposed to be anywhere else. Um, it was just this leaning in rather than leaning away when things are tough. That was the, this like the strength of a warrior that leans into the battle. Um, and, um, and this teaching that we've, everything we've been doing until now has prepared us to be in this moment. Um, and um, yeah, um, I, I share in that chapter that as a, as a young person, my dad was in the civil rights movement. And as I read books about that experience, Alice Walker, different people, you know, talking about being my age and being in marches and, you know, really shifting the course of history. There was often such a longing to have been born at that time to be able to make that kind of difference. And, you know, reading this quote, um, Dr. Estes, this sense that um, there's not another time that we're supposed to be in, <laughs> but the one we're in that actually, um, this moment has accumulated from all of the past moments. And we've been <laughs> in those past moments too. And so we bring to this moment something that, you know, only we can bring because we have been, you know, on this journey that's gotten us to here. And so um, each, each generation or each, you know, group has, has their inheritance to work on, and this is ours. So this kind of like um, wholehearted embracing of this moment. Um, there's a, 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 a saying by Master Lin Chi, one of the patriarchs, uh, Zen and Chan Buddhism says, you already are what you want to become sense that what we what we need 
we have it. Um, so it's also like a really profound teaching on trust and stepping into our own shoes, stepping into this moment, not shrinking back, not discounting ourselves or each other too, because it's a we, not, not I, right? So like collectively, we also, you know, different teachers talk about how we have everything we need and scientists also, we have all the technologies we need to, all the wisdom, the capacity to take care of this very critical moment. It's, it's just a matter of doing it, but like the technologies, the, the pathways are there to, to move out of this really dangerous time. I mean, not that everything can be uh, kept as it once was, or you know, things have already changed beyond um, what, what was a stable planet for millennia. That's, that's already, we're past that point, but um, it doesn't mean that, um, yeah, we don't really have many, many possibilities at our disposal that are already here. So, so we were made for these times is, is like on many levels true in terms of just the human in, innovation and capacity to adapt. Mm -hmm. And laced throughout this book is a story of a big transition that you underwent and I've heard, I can't remember if it was in this book where I listened to in, in the interview with you on the 10% happier podcast, where you describe that time of your life, that huge transition as like being in a birth canal. Mm. And I really, and you didn't know, like, if you were going to make it through how you were going to make it through. Um, I really resonate with that. I'm just a couple of years, just emerging for the past couple of years from a similar period you know, different storyline, but same energetics. And, mm. and I know that so many of us go through these passages of just major, major upheaval. And can you speak to us about what that transition was and what it was like for you? Sure. Um, so yeah, the transition was becoming a nun and living as a nun for 15 years. And then disrobing so taking basically four years to figure out did I want to continue or leave um, two of those in the monastery two years outside of the monastery to, to do that discerning um, and um, yeah it was this experience of being really clear about a path for you know, at age 25, I just really made this decision to become a nun. And I thought I would do that for the rest of my life. So I, I really had um, bought into that story. And then in my late 30s, that story started to shake under my feet. And I was not clear, you know, what I was supposed to be doing anymore. And so that um, not knowing that just 
the insecurity of having what I thought was a solid path start to buckle and, and you know, move underneath me. Um, and really not having a clear sense of what lay beyond if I were to leave, but, but feeling I really needed to, to explore and, and give it a, yeah, um, at least start to, to check it out, um, offered me a real opportunity to um, to learn how to be comfortable in the discomfort of not knowing, like not really comfortable, but to realize I could I could be okay with profound unknowing and uncertainty that I didn't have to know in order to feel safe that I could just meet each moment, whatever it was, um, just on its own terms. And, and there was this sense of, of trust again that developed of, uh, I may not know exactly where I'm headed, but I can trust that I need to make this one step. And this step, I'm being met, I'm being held. So now I can make this other step. And so just really kind of very, um, you know, without a clear sense of the path, just moving one step at a time and feeling that I, I was guided, you know, that, that I was being supported, whatever I was doing. And so I never looked back or regretted or, thought I was doing the wrong thing it was really like I don't know what I'm doing but I need to be doing this and that began to get clearer and clearer until okay now I saw okay there is a, a path um, and what was it that made you decide to leave monastic life hmm. it, it was really a a, a very deep yearning to be a biological mom to have a child and um that just didn't i didn't feel like it would be healthy to try to suppress and even though i was very happy as a nun and very um I was able to do a lot and that was very fulfilling to me and make a difference for people in, in ways that I really appreciated. Um, yeah, it felt like I was just ruining something that was so well put together <laughs> and, uh, and there wasn't anything clear on the other end. Like it wasn't you know, I didn't know if I could have a child. Just no guarantees. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know if I would, you know, yeah, I didn't know how I was going to make money. I didn't know where I was going to live, what I was going to do. But, you know, I listened to that. And um, I think while that was the main text, there were subtexts too that were sort of came clearer later around individuating because I had lived my whole life in community from birth to 14 and then 15 years in my, of my adult life. And 
so I think part of it too was like learning to take care of myself and see what that was like outside of a community setting but I did this motherhood journey and really kind of saw it to its end I didn't have a child but I had a big realization after nine years of really focusing on how can I be a mom. Um, the, the end of that nine year journey was really letting go and seeing that that need to have a child, that was important. I needed to do all the things I did to try to make that happen. And that led me to a deep awareness and acceptance that that wasn't my path, mm. you know, to have a biological child. And so I could really be at peace with that. But I had to do many steps to, to get to that point. And, and none of them were, you know, um, unnecessary. They all had, they all were important to get to that place of letting that go. Yeah, I've been on a, a similar, similar path. Mm. Yeah, many years mm. of wanting to have a child, trying to have a child and all of it leading to me, leading me to the point of, of realizing it's not, this is not my path. Wow. And, and being at mm. peace with that. And wow. yeah, hearing you say that each of those steps was important. I hadn't really thought about that in terms of my own path. Mm. But I see that yes, each, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. each step was important because I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have come to the place that I am now without them. Yeah. Yeah. And as, you know, as I look back, I can judge myself for being a bit compulsive or kind of um, attached to that idea. But then I can also see that I really needed to go through that journey and I'm, you know, I would do it differently with this awareness because I mean, there was so much pressure that I put on myself and the situations I was in um, on my body, you know, like. And that's kind of part of the process though. Yeah, exactly. So this, you know, like seeing all that, you know, the compression of it. And then when I let go of it, this, oh, it's really lovely, like, oh, I can just be, I don't have, like, I, you know, I, I would have, I was surprised at how easy it was to accept that this wasn't going to be my path. Like, I, I thought it would just be so devastating. But actually, what I really experienced was a lot of freedom. It's like, oh, my gosh, I don't have to put all my energy on trying to make this happen anymore. I can just be, I can, anything can happen. It was a sense of, like, total yeah freedom and like wow all these things I never thought I might do or be were now possible because I wasn't trying to squeeze myself into this mm. one path and actually right after that letting go I was not looking for a relationship but the person who I I believe to be my life partner showed up into my life. And so I really yeah. see that like letting that go allowed space for this other thing to come, come in. 
but I wasn't yeah. looking for it. That was the thing. Like I was just okay as, as I was, but then, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm struck by the parallels in our story because it's huh. pretty much, yeah, wow. same. I oh, thought it would so be very devastating to let go of and it, it wasn't, it hasn't been. And, mm -hmm. and then this wonderful relationship came in and mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess I didn't realize that part of your story that that was mm -hmm. that was one of the big motivators to leave monastic life. Yeah. yeah. And I'm also hearing yes, the desire to individuate after mm -hmm. spending so much of your life in community. Mm -hmm. And then so once you made the transition, like what were some of the hardest parts of it for you? Because you know, yeah. life as a layperson. Mm. I've never had a monastic life. I've always like had an alter ego that has dreamt of that, but it just, uh -huh. it just seems to be, I know that's not without its problems, but sure, you know, it's sure. just different realities. Well, one of the things I really experienced, so I, I ended up <clears throat> after sort of, I had an itinerant lifestyle for a few years after I left teaching and traveling. And then I, Soon after I disrobed, I got an apartment, um, rented the basement of a dear friend's uh, house in DC. And, you know, it was really like this sense of, I had had this buffer of protection around me as a nun, like living in the monastery, everything around me was, you know, it was, it was a bit of a bubble. So we had all the same understanding of like the bell moving mindfully, eating mindfully times of silence. It was like not a, a rush pressure <laughs> stress kind of the environment that we're usually in, in, in many, you know, urban places for sure. Um, and I, didn't have a cell phone as a nun, I had an e email address, but like people couldn't just call me. They had to call the office and then give me a message and I, you know, call them back. So it was like really this sense of like, you know, I wasn't just going out all the time, you know, I, I, there was like my room and then there was the sister's area and then there was the you know, main area with brothers, sisters, lay people. And then there was the world outside. But when I moved to this apartment, it was me and my apartment and just opening the door, it was the world outside. There wasn't any kind of like trans, you know, transition time. And I was all by myself. And having grown up, as I mentioned, in community my whole life. Um, you know, this like realizing how much more uphill it was to have an environment that was um, really supportive of presence when it was just me. Um, and I would meditate and I would do my yoga and I would sometimes go walking mindfully in the park. But it, it the, you know, being in the monastery was just like having this stream that you could ride on that was going in the direction of, of relating mindfully to every part of your life. 
but when you were by yourself it was like going upstream by yourself yeah and like you had to go on retreat to find that kind of stream exactly so then I spent a lot of time going on retreat in those years transitioning out of monastic life Um, but then you know there were also it was wonderful too like it was great to feel like gosh after really I'd never really I mean after college pretty much I went to live in Plum Village I had six months where I worked but I never really you know had to support myself financially and so realizing wow I can do this you know I can actually it took a while to figure out how to you know um, earn income and but then just to kind of not you know to gain confidence in that part of my life because I hadn't really ever had to do that I never paid taxes you know um never had to set a fee of what I should charge for something I mean that was like so tough to do that because I just didn't want to put up any barrier or I had so many judgments about just charging money for something um so I that so but then gaining some confidence in that that I could do that and um yeah so there were there were things that that brought a sense of empowerment also and there were you know times too I remember just like I realized I hadn't really I had never lived alone until I was like 40 40 one or 42 maybe and I was like I couldn't believe how painful it was to like eat alone day after day and and it was this like oh awakening moment too of like so many people have this experience now not everyone experiences it as a negative thing you know maybe some people really have have embraced that as a as a beautiful solitude, but I think a lot of people really do feel very lonely. And I hadn't ever really touched that. And so living alone, I also felt I'm glad to touch this because I, I understand better what probably a lot of people experience. Um, so that also sense of like being in solidarity more with yeah maybe a number of humanities experience especially in western culture um yeah so it was was a lot of things it was a lot of things it was a very big adjustment of basically recreating a a new sense of myself but also feeling like the essence of what i was living as a nun wasn't changing you know that like what I I just continued to teach the dharma full-time so I started a group in DC that met every week and that was really fulfilling to begin to make deep connections and friendships with people to really be a 
a source of spiritual support and to also lean on on them over time to feel like they were also there for me and um, to begin to make really good friendships with people that I've taught with or that I've practiced with. Yeah, and so to kind of really realize like there's there's amazing practice everywhere. Like there are people doing courageous, beautiful things with integrity, letting go, forgiving, showing up fully everywhere. And, and that you can be in touch with those people even in the midst of a big city. It doesn't have to be in a monastery. I want to take a short break from my conversation with Kyra Jewell to let you know about something that is coming up very soon. But first, I wanted to share that I started my day today as I start most every day. And that is with or that was with a a meditation practice and also a yoga practice. And because I've been in the process of moving into a new home and just feeling a lot of low energy lately, my practice this morning was just a really gentle Ian sequence to help manage my energy, to help kind of rebuild my kidney reserves, and to help me to get into a just grounded, present space to be able to show up for all that I need to show up for today. I'm recording this on a Monday morning, so I have a full week ahead. And this kind of daily practice is is really a foundation of my life. It's been a foundation for about 25 years now since I started practicing when I was 17. And this kind of daily practice that is not about pushing, it's not about fixing or getting somewhere, but it's about meeting myself where I am and really caring for myself where I am is exactly what I'm teaching and just delving more into later this fall in my 200-hour online women's yoga and meditation teacher training. We cover so much more than that. We, We cover really the seasons and cycles of women's lives from PMS to menstruation, pregnancy, postpartum, perimenopause, menopause. We weave together Buddhist meditation, women's yin and slow flow yoga, internal family systems therapy, just to really address all dimensions of a woman through all that she experiences throughout her lifetime. We're an intergenerational community, so we have women in their 20s and women up into their 60s and 70s, and it's just a really sweet gathering of women from around the world. We meet over four three-day weekends between October and January, so it really has a retreat-like feeling. And we don't leave these weekends with Zoom fatigue. Actually, it's the opposite. We leave feeling energized and inspired because we've been practicing and connecting in really real, authentic, supportive ways throughout the weekend. So if this is something that would be of interest to you and you want to learn more, registration is about to open. It opens on September 12th and it's open for 10 days. 
So you can learn more at womensyogateachertraining.com. That's womensyogateachertraining.com. And this is for you if you've already been certified to teach yoga, if you've taken many, many trainings. And it's also for you if you've never taken a training and even just the thought of teaching a yoga class feels scary for you. This is for you if you want to teach yoga or if you just want to deepen your practice or bring more of a specialization of supporting women into your work, whatever that work happens to be. So again, you can learn more and join us at womensyogateachertraining.com. We have payment plans, we have scholarships, and it's going to just be a really nourishing, supportive, interesting immersion together. And now back to our conversation. With you having just gone back to Plum Village recently, like, are there things about monastic life that you miss or... Do you really feel just settled and at peace in being outside of that world now? Mm-hmm. You know, the things I really loved about being a nun, being a monastic, were the the ease of spontaneous, creative, fun moments so we would gather and have a jam session or create a play or make a dance together there would you know you always had playmates because there were so many of us there are always people who would do something with you or grab you to do something with them and um so i i did less of that after i left the monastery and that, that was always something i grew up dancing and singing and being in plays and making music and of course, even after I left, I, I was teaching and actually doing a lot of interplay, an improvisational form of unlocking the wisdom of the body through movement and voice and storytelling. So I, I continued to do that and teach that. But, you know, you had, to, you had to be much more intentional about creating a space for that to happen and sort of, you know, falling into a sister's room and just singing together or, you know, we were so much together that it would just easily happen that we would be creative together. And so when I was back there this time, I got a chance to just join a uh, impromptu singing session, singing in harmony moving and singing and it was just a really lovely lovely experience and I think yeah that was one of the things that I I I noticed after I left was I didn't have as much play time Mm -hmm. and creative time yeah a lot more just work and life logistics Yeah. yeah yeah So getting back to your, to your book and, you know, you go through just a series of, of facets to help people orient during times of, of disruption of change. And there's one chapter on resting back and trusting in the unknown. And I know this, this can be one of the most challenging parts of change and 
Mm-hmm. And one of the most challenging parts of where we find ourselves in the world right now. Um, what are what are some key practices or perspectives that that you want to name from the book that that can help us to orient to this? Yeah. Um, well, one is that not knowing isn't bad, that we, we can feel so lost when we don't know. And there's so much, especially in our culture, so much value placed on having an answer and, you know, having certainty. Um, but, um, there's actually a lot of power in, in not knowing. There's a, a fertility there um, where when you do know, it's just one thing that's possible, just that one thing. But when you don't know, then anything's possible. Like there's many more possibilities. So not framing the not knowing as a a loss, as a lack. And then um, and then the other piece is you know there are different levels of our consciousness. We talk about the store consciousness in Buddhist psychology. It's a part of our mind that's always holding and taking care of things. It's processing and registering and making sense of things. And we can we can have a question, have something we can't figure out, and we can entrust it to this deeper part of our consciousness to figure it out for us. And so that is something I really experienced that I just couldn't think my way to an answer. That, that wasn't the, a good use of my mind power to try to think through something so mysterious and huge, like, should I stay a nun or should I leave? It was something that just needed time to unfold. So I talk about it in the book as like, these are questions, you know, we all face in our lives and we can think of them as like a seed. You can't, a seed can't realize what it's supposed to do if you keep holding it in your hand, trying to poke at it and figure out what it's going to be. A seed can only do its job if you plant it in the soil, water it, give it sun, and let it be. It needs time, it needs space. It needs your trust that it's going to do what it needs to do. And so that question, whatever it is that we have, we can think of it like that, where we have to plant it in the soil of our store consciousness and let this other part of ourselves ripen it. And we we just have to let go and trust it's going to come when it's ready to come. And, And what I really am aware of is that you have to be resting for that to happen you have to be you know 
not worrying about what is gonna, what the answer is gonna be, because that disrupts that process of the seed coming to fruition. So it's a real letting go, just trusting it's gonna come. The answer is gonna appear when it's right. And until that time, I just go about my life doing what I can do, which is practicing, being aware, being present, being grateful, you know, paying attention and not worrying, you know, not trying to force something. And then when it's right, often when we least expect it, it's there. And so it's a very like yin or feminine approach. And it's, I'm hearing just a lot of those nature Mm -hmm. analogies of just yeah, just trusting the cycles, the seasons of life. And yeah. yeah, when I'm working with clients, I work with a lot of clients who are going through big transitions and they just think like, it's never going to, it's never going to end. I'm never, it's never going to change. I'm never going to get out of it. And mm-hmm. always reminding them. And I reminded myself when I was in their shoes that like, spring always follows winter and dawn always follows night and it's just it's like a pattern in the universe that we can trust but it takes time yeah so another another aspect that you speak about and i think that is a big component of these transitional times in our lives is strong emotions mm-hmm. and that can be also just one of the hardest things and you you wrote on page 55 what most needs attention is the part of us that we, that we seek to avoid feeling when we have tended to that we are changed and the world changes with us. It's a quote that you shared from Dan Emmons. So can you share with us just maybe even up to you, if you want to lead us through a short meditation or practice or some way to support being with being with strong emotions when they arise. Yeah. Um, Would you prefer a practice or to share about it? Whatever you, whatever feels. Yeah. I'm open to either. Um, I'll share that. Um, I think what has really been very helpful for me is that noticing when there's a strong emotion and consciously orienting myself to turn towards it rather than to avoid it or to judge it or to let it sweep me away. So, um, You know, it it happens so fast, it's not always easy to parse out what's arising and then what our response to it is, but there are are those two different things. You know, what, what is happening in terms of the emotion and then how we choose to respond to it. Um, And so, when there's a, a painful emotion, a strong emotion, 
what always, always helps me is if I can accept that it's here, like make space for it and acknowledge it and um, you know, there's usually some story that's playing beneath the surface of some kind of aversion to what I'm experiencing. This shouldn't be here. Why is this like this? I want this to go away. Or this is so-and-so's fault. Or, you know, <laughs> blame is also a way to get away from something. But if I can <clears throat> notice whatever my initial reaction is, which usually is not accepting and welcoming something painful. So I notice, okay, I'm having a reaction to what I'm feeling. And then can I just be with what I'm feeling? You know, in its raw, awkward, very, you know, tight or, you know, confusing or whatever it is, like, it's usually also embodied. So that's the other piece when I tune in is to try to notice how does it feel in my body? And can I really allow it to be here, however it is? You know, um, not asking myself to be, to have it all together in this moment. And, you know, and so, you know, offerings, Sometimes I'm able to kind of articulate what it is, feeling uneasy or feeling upset or feeling humiliated or whatever. It can be helpful to just kind of say, yeah, this is, this is what's here. And um, I mean, the, the reason having a regular mindfulness practice of just being aware of what's happening day to day, moment to moment, it's so important before you get to this step because it's a lot harder to, to be mindful when there's a strong emotion if, if you haven't been exercising that muscle in less intense situations, right? So, but, but that, that energy can really be a force that can embrace your strong emotion and can say, I'm here for you. I, know, I see you, I hear you, I feel you, and I'm holding you. Like, you don't have to go away. You don't have to you know, make it all look pretty. You can be as messy as you need to be and I'm holding you, but you need something that you're cultivating on a regular basis that can hold the painful, sticky, you know, slippery emotion. Um, but it's possible, it's possible to cultivate that and to meet that with, with kindness and with care and over time to just be with that emotion until it settles down enough till you get some kind of insight usually well i i really think in strong emotions painful emotions are teachers and they come to teach us something 
that's not there on the surface. So we have to sit with them long enough that they will reveal what they're here to show us about ourselves or to help us understand that we didn't understand about whatever our parents, how we were raised or a belief we need to let go of or you know, a deeper root than what we first understood was, was at the, you know, the cause of this. And so just sitting with it, being with it, there's a, a soothing, there's a releasing, there's a letting go. And then there's this often, oh, I, I understand myself better because I've sat with this strong emotion. I mean, even in my relationship now with my husband, when we have a, you know, conflict or you know we say things that are abrasive to each other we'll we'll sparse it out and it'll be very revealing if we stay with the discomfort of it between us oh well i i said this because this is how i was really feeling and then the other person's oh right that makes so much sense and i said this i reacted in this way because this was what was going on for me and so we pull back layers and we understand each other better. We see each other's vulnerability and it's so much easier to let go or to, you know, then when I'm in interacting with him in the future, that's, that's an awareness that's created more space in me now so that I am less likely to, to be dominated by my habit in that same way in, in the next situation. Because we, we, we pulled back the layers of that one situation. So those habitual tendencies aren't as strong, aren't as, you know, they're stronger when they're hidden. So once we've each seen each other's like deeper insecurities or, you know, blind spots, it's like light has been shown on them and they're not quite as entrenched the next time around. So we'll catch ourselves earlier or, or apologize right in the moment and be like, whoops, it's not what I wanted to say, or, you know, let me clarify or whatever. So um, even between, between uh, me and someone else, I can see how um, that, that the emotion reveals a great deal that really supports me to be more free but I yeah. won't get there if I don't spend the time processing the emotion and you also speak to um the five happiness by Sean Anker which I, I thought were really really simple but really potent reminders during challenging times can you just share what those are with us sure sure so five things that have been researched and proven to increase our happiness that we can do every day. Um, one is to pray or meditate. Uh, another is to exercise. Another is to um, be aware of three, three things we're grateful for. A fourth one is to um, practice a random or conscious act of kindness. So not expecting anything in return. And a fourth, fifth one is to journal a moment of happiness. So at the end of the day, to look back and see what was a happy moment um, and to really let that in and 
kind of relive it and um, allow it to really sink in. Mm. And now you weave together mindfulness and Buddhism and social justice. What is what does that look like for you as you weave mindfulness and Buddhism with social justice? Um, well, it it changes, but I I run a fellowship for BIPOC youth activists, a two-year fellowship, leading retreats with a, a co-teacher offering online. We do online things on the month that we're not meeting in person for retreats, but it's really um, exploring and practicing together how social justice is spiritual practice and spiritual practice is social justice, that they're not two things. And um, I think creating community is a, a way of doing this as activism as well. So um, with my husband, we're um, creating a Buddhist Christian community of meditation and action. We meet every month, um, the last Monday of the month, usually it's on Zoom and we share more Buddhist and Christian traditions, but we also um, are moving towards a retreat center that can um, can also be a place of, of ecological uh, sanity and love with the earth, growing food and caring for the land as we practice a, a really committed spiritual path um, and share that with others. Um, Yeah, and then there's work that I do in environmental, ecological, earth justice spaces of connecting Buddhist communities to awareness of our planetary uh, world and needs, and then also connecting uh, those who are acting on behalf of the planet, connecting them with the spiritual um, path. So kind of inter weaving in between those, um, bringing them together more and more and being part of spaces where they aren't separate. Um, so there's communities I'm a part of, like the Earth Holder Sangha in the Plum Village tradition that does um, actions and studies and community building around caring for the planet. And then there's One Earth Sangha in the the Pasana tradition that I'm a part of that raises awareness in Buddhist communities about uh, climate crisis. And there's activist groups that I'm part of. And yeah. And what's your current growing edge just as a woman, as a mm -hmm. practitioner? I think it's something to do with 
um, this need for space, this wanting to really be engaged, but also really be happily disengaged in the sense of um, connecting with this truth that everything is, is okay in this moment. I don't have to become something else. I don't have to run. I don't have to be something other than I am. So this, you know, this paradox of resting in the moment, you know, being engaged, being attentive to what I feel my purpose is here, but also um, not being enslaved by my views about what, you know, that sense of always having to be worrying about the next thing. And so, so this, um, Yeah, I'm, I'm moving, I think, sometimes it feels like I'm making progress in terms of creating more space in my life for, for just downtime, for nothing, for being in nature, for enjoying. But I also, I, I, my edge really is also not filling the space with more stuff and just really enjoying the not doing. And where can listeners learn more about you? And is there anything upcoming that you want to share with us? Sure. So I have a website, which is my name, kyrajewel.com. And I have a newsletter. You can sign up for that on my website. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm teaching retreats. Um, I have a BIPOC retreat in September at Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. It's a Buddhist Christian retreat. I'm teaching with a um, black woman clergy. Um, and then there's a nature retreat that I'm teaching with Mark Coleman at Spirit Rock in the fall, in November. Um, but I would in encourage folks who are interested in a, in a Buddhist Christian experience to join our monthly group. You could just drop in one time to um, yeah, lots of places. If, if you're BIPOC and you want to come to a weekly BIPOC meditation group Thursdays at noon Eastern, that's through Garrison Institute. I'm there with my co-teacher Maricela Gomez. We take turns leading that. So there's a couple different places. Great. And I also want to encourage listeners to get a copy of your book, You Are Made for These Times. And it's, 
each chapter has, it ends with meditation instruction, like pretty intense, um, extensive meditation instruction, as well as journaling prompts. So there's definitely help to just apply these teachings to your life and your practice. So thank you. Thank mm. you for your time today, Kyra Jewell. Thank, thank you for you the so work much. that you're doing in this beautiful book. Mm, thank you so much for uh, inviting me and for your interest in the book. I appreciate that. Thank you for being here today. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you could take a moment to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. That is the best way to support me in continuing on with this podcast and also to support other women in finding this, other women who may find this beneficial for their own lives. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're not already signed up for my newsletter, Monthly Insights, which I've been sending out now for almost 20 years, I welcome you to join me and a community of like-hearted women from around the world there. You can subscribe at my website, sarahavonstover.com. Until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.